My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Have you heard the term healthy attachment? Psychologists use it to describe feelings of safety and trust within a relationship, such as between a parent and a child. It sets the stage for healthy emotional development and the ability to thrive in so many ways, from being better able to regulate difficult emotions to developing confidence and healthy relationships. But what if you never quite had that healthy connection? What if you never quite learned how to love? This is one factor that can raise your risk of sex and love addiction, according to many experts. While debate continues as to whether sex and love addiction symptoms fit the addiction model or not, the World Health Organization listed compulsive sexual behavior disorder in their international classification of diseases this year, and the countless people who struggle with the compulsions and dependencies will tell you it is no joke. If you or a loved one has struggled in this area, the good news is there is so much hope to be had. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so thankful that you're listening. Today, you're going to hear from Charlene de Guzman, a writer and actor here in L.A., whose new film centering on sex and love addiction, Unlovable, is a must-see. I watched it yesterday and found it so charming and poignant and inspiring. Before we dive in, a huge, grateful sponsor shout-out to the Earthseas podcast, a team of four feminist women who talk about sex, relationships, and porn. Based in Berlin, Germany, they all work within the adult industry in some shape or form and tackle a wide variety of subjects from the fun of personal kinks to the more pressing matters of consent and censorship. They release a new episode the first Friday of every month. Learn more at www.ertzies-podcast.com, E-R-S-T-I-E-S, podcast.com and search for the Earthseas podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find them on Twitter at Earthseas Podcasts and stay tuned for an episode right here featuring these powerhouses very soon. As a reminder, you can all now purchase my new book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment on Amazon and most anywhere books are sold. I'm so honored that it was featured in the New York Times last week. They called it terrifically encouraging and a thorough primer on everything from sex toys to bondage to no means no, intended for young women readers who might be new to the idea that they deserve and own their personal pleasure. And as with all things Girl Boner, folks of all ages and genders are welcome to check it out. I hope it holds takeaways for guys and non-binary folks too, as well as people in their 40s, 50s, and older. If you do check it out, I would love to hear from you by way of an Amazon review. You can also reach out to me directly with questions to be answered here on the show and sign up for occasional Girl Boner Extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com. Now, I am so pleased to welcome Charlene de Guzman to the show. She first garnered attention from tweeting her self-deprecating thoughts as Char Starlene. Rolling Stone named her one of the funniest people on Twitter right now. She went on to write and star in her own short films, and her most popular, I Forgot My Phone, you gotta check it out, has over 50 million views on YouTube and was featured in the New York Times, USA Today, Time, NPR, Good Morning America, Vice, The Today Show, and more. Charlene is an advocate for self-love and bringing awareness to sex and love addiction. She speaks publicly about her recovery and has her own advice column with Flood Magazine. That first film I mentioned, it's called Unlovable. It's out in theaters this week, November 1st, in select theaters, and then also it's available on demand starting November 2nd, that's this year, 2018, and stars Charlene, John Hawks, and Melissa Leo, and was executive produced by the Dupless Brothers. Learn more at www 
charstarlene.com. Thank you for being here, Charlene. Thanks for having me. I'd love to hear a little bit about your early journey. Where did you grow up and what did you learn about sex and sexuality? Well, I grew up in San Jose, California, and um, my parents immigrated here from the Philippines. Um, And so my family, I had two older brothers as well. Um, You know, in Filipino culture, you don't talk about anything. So especially with sex, it's like we do not talk about that. You know, we were very Catholic. Um, The first even... I guess you could call it talk with my mom was her um, just coming up to me saying, you know, if you ever have sex, I'll be able to tell by the way you walk. And by then, I think I was 15 or something. I already had had sex. So like in my mind, I was kind of laughing of like. Actually, no, you don't know because you've been seeing me walk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, nothing was talked about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Which is. Pretty common, I yes. think, right? And and pervasive and problematic and all that all that stuff. So congratulations on your film. Oh, thank you. It really is so endearing. And, you know, when you hear there's a film, it's about sex and love addiction. Mm-hmm. If that's all you heard, you might think it's like really dark and gritty. Right. And it does have heavy themes, mm-hmm. really important mm-hmm. psychological themes. But it is so charming and sweet. Aww. It really is. The all of the relationships in it, the acting is stellar. It's funny. Uh, I just big kudos. Oh, for thank that. you so much. That was definitely a goal that me and the director Susie Unessi had a goal. Uh, you know, right from the bat of like wanting it to be very light and bright and colorful and hopeful and like wanted to take this dark subject and show it in this other way. Yeah. Yeah. It was very effectively done, I thought. So I hope everyone goes to see it. I wonder, and I'm sure you hear this question a lot, it's based on your own experience. Mm -hmm. How much of it would you say is kind of autobiographical in a way? Yeah, I would call it semi-autobiographical because, you know, the main storyline of Joy and Jim, that wasn't like an actual thing that happened to me. There was no Jim. Um, But the... I, I. the portrayal of sex and love addiction is definitely, you know, very close to home. Yeah, the arc of it. Mm-hmm. And there's a big theme of recovery mm-hmm. and healing and finding yourself in your own life. Mm-hmm. When did you start to realize that it was a problem? You know, it's interesting because I didn't start getting help for it until 2014. But in 2011, I had a friend one time, I think we were talking on Gchat, and he was like, have you ever heard of sex and love addiction? And I was like, no. And um, I Googled it and I saw like the questions to answer and that that list of characteristics. And I was like, whoa, this is me. I had no idea that this is a thing. But I didn't think anything of it. I think I remember ordering, you know, the love addiction book off Amazon from PM Melody, read that and was like, wow, this is me. But like thought nothing of it. I think I went to, I tried three 12-step meetings. And like, honestly, at that time, I was like, what the heck? Why is everyone complaining? Like, we're fine. We're not crazy. We're fine. We've got this under control. So I never went back again. But in 2014, because at this point, you know, after unavailable man, after unavailable man, this was the most unavailable by far. And it was so painful to be with this person. And I thought that if I just went back into the 12-step program, I'd fix it in maybe 30 days and then the relationship would be fine. Um, but I did that. Um, we ended up breaking up. Um a few months after that, I ended up going back to him, sleeping with him three days in a row. He ghosted me, which was normal for him. But at that point, I think I even even having a few months of like recovery and sobriety, it hurt more than it ever had before. And because he hadn't texted me back, I really was planning on killing myself. And that was in January 2015, where I was like pacing around my apartment, trying to figure out how to kill myself. And it was like a joke. I couldn't find like a knife in my house that was like sharp enough to cut myself. I didn't have enough pills. The last thing I said out loud was, where do I even find a bridge? And then my phone rang. It was him. Oh my gosh. And just seeing his name and his picture, I could feel all the pain just dissipate from my body immediately like a drug. And it was that moment that I knew that, oh, 
this is how I know I'm sick. Wow, that's really powerful. Because it was actually like a drug. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And the the depth of it and Mm -hmm. the seriousness is so important to recognize, I think, because, you know, I looked at one of the lists that Mm -hmm. you mentioned that lists out some of the traits. Mm -hmm. And when I was first reading it, I was like, oh, I kind of remember being like this a little. Like, you can kind of see yourself a little bit because we've all been a little insecure or like overly dependent. But it's very different when watching your film and actually seeing it manifest and experiencing someone's story, you go, oh, no. I mean, there's no question. Mm. This is an addiction. Yeah. It is It is something that is so debilitating. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there had been some denial early on for you. Yeah, perhaps. because, you know, honestly, especially if you talk to, you know, some of your closest friends or people, like, they're just like, that's normal. Or like, and they'll, you know, I've had friends tell me before, like, well, just go sleep with someone else. Like, you know, go out and get drunk tonight and like, just hook up with someone. And you're taught and you're modeled that like, it's fine. And like, I'm an empowered woman, and I'm gonna do whatever I want. And it's fine. But you know, People have asked me, like, when do you know it's an addiction? Like, how do you know that you have to even be concerned about it? And for me, when it destroys your life, you know, that day because he didn't text me, I didn't show up to work. I didn't show up to any of my things. I think, you know, like, that's when it's a concern. Yeah, it's much more extreme. Yeah. So some of these traits, maybe we could talk Mm -hmm. about a bit and maybe you could share an example of something that either you went through or Joy, perhaps, Mm -hmm. the main character in your film, uh, because when we hear what, what actually happens is is quite different from just, oh, no big deal. Right. It, it's bigger than that. So one is having few healthy boundaries, uh, becoming sexually involved with and or emotionally attached to people without knowing them. Mm-hmm. So someone could hear that and go, oh, hookup culture. Yes. Like, I totally had a one night stand. Right. <laughs> but what would yeah, be an well, example? Because for me, even all my boyfriends in the past were just drunk hookups or one night stands that stuck. So I never knew who they were. And so I would immediately become obsessed with them because we had sex. And then I think I'm in love with them. And then I spend the next year or two obsessed with them and wondering why they're so hurtful or they're the way they are or cold and avoidant. And it's like they're just being themselves. They were always this way, but I just never got to know them. (laughs) Ah, Yeah. Hindsight's really powerful, isn't it? Uh, confusing love with neediness, mm-hmm. physical and sexual attraction, pity and or the need to rescue or be rescued. Again, a lot of us have felt needy at some point, mm-hmm. right? A little little too desperate, getting into a relationship for the wrong reason. But I know from uh, the film and also, you know, people who experience this kind of, of issue, mm-hmm. it goes beyond that. Yeah, because even for me in my real life and in Joy's life of like that desperate need for validation, like... For me, it was like I just needed something to feel worth living, you know? Yeah. Yeah, which you mentioned life a lot in these in this context. It, it is. It's a matter of life and death often in, in these cases and yeah. in severe cases. Mm-hmm. In the film, and I don't want to give away the plot at all, but there is reference to somebody who did die by yes. suicide. Yeah. Which is a really powerful element, I thought, to yeah. the film. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that was important to you to convey? Definitely, because even, you know, in the program, you hear about people killing themselves. And for me, um, even thinking about that character in the film, I would tell myself to imagine, you know, this other version of myself that would have gone through with it that day. Mm. It was a really touching scene. There's a bath. There are several bathtub scenes that are some of the most touching mm-hmm. scenes I've seen. Just really lovely. Um, and I, I think like the intimacy of that yes. people relate to, which is really nice. Um, there, there are some songs that are written. There's a musical element. I wondered, too, if there was a montage with, I think, drumming and meditation. Mm-hmm. What were some of the practices that helped you? Yeah. Climb out. Yeah, it was so interesting because my, my um for my recovery was like learning like what do I like to do? What feels good? What makes me happy? What's my purpose? And so I got to really explore that and even starting right off I just made a list of everything that I've ever wanted to do but didn't. And so like I put like puppet school. So I went to puppet school. Um 
you know, I wanted to like try like an aerial class and I was really bad at it. So I never went back, but it was cool to try it. Yeah. Um, but then even like the simple things like um, sleeping when I'm tired, eating when I'm hungry. I realized that I didn't even know how to take care of myself, like mm. basic human needs. Um, then nice things like buying myself flowers or buying candles, taking baths. I had never done that ever before like mm-hmm. never did things that were nice for myself because it was always about some guy that I was trying to impress so it's like even if I got like a paycheck for something it's like I'm gonna buy him something like it was never for myself it's like you're lost inside of it mm-hmm. the addiction it seems it gets really overpowering and becomes bigger than you yeah I didn't even know who I was yeah. that's what was really scary about recovery was once I got rid of the guys I had no idea who I was because I was always trying to be what I thought whoever I was with wanted. And I was always trying to be into whatever he was into or like look this way because maybe he'd like that. Like I did not know who I was. Mm -hmm. The character Joy has a sponsor Mm -hmm. that plays a big role in her recovery. Mm -hmm. Did you have a sponsor and are they helpful, important? Yeah, I actually, what I consider my sponsor, I actually have these two mentors. Um, They're a couple in their 70s that live in Encino. And um, I actually met them at a spiritual retreat, even a a year or so before I got into recovery. But they really saved me and taught me how to love myself, forgive myself, forgive my parents. get rid of any shame, like all these really, really great things taught me about gratitude, all of these wonderful things that I had no tools, you know, and they like gave me the tools. And to this day, I call them my spirit parents. Uh, They're kind of just like my chosen family out here. And every Sunday I go see them for dinner. That's so awesome. I'm so glad that you found them and and have been able to cultivate that Mm self-love. I think that's so important. One thing that's really cool about the film is it's educational without being preachy. Mm. And I could feel there's so many messages in it that are naturally part of the story, but that reveal so much about words that kind of get thrown around and people don't understand Mm. if you haven't experienced it. So triggers is one. Right. And there's a wonderful scene around that. And and also this scene where Joy is sitting with her her friend and they're watching uh, TV flipping through shows and like trigger, trigger, trigger. Like you couldn't watch certain yeah. things. I'm saying you because yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah, mushing yeah. you together. <laughs> but so Joy, yeah. um, she she couldn't look at certain things and having fun with it, but they're also taking it seriously. Yeah. What do you want people to know about triggers and, and being triggered? Um, You know, I think a big part of uh, my healing was step one, acknowledging those triggers. Um, there's actually this pamphlet in the program that says triggers as resources. And me and my friends always make a joke about it because it's just so funny. Like, triggers as resources. But the truth is, is that there are gifts in the triggers because whatever it is pushing within you, whatever button that is, it's something that's coming up to be healed. So mm-hmm. if you're having this big, you know, uncontrollable reaction to something, Yes, first acknowledge that, learn to love that and tend to it, but also there's something there that needs to be listened to, acknowledged, felt. Um, you know, a big part of my recovery was learning how to feel feelings. I was wondering about that because I know that in my own journey, and I haven't experienced the kinds of addiction that, that you mm-hmm. have, but I've had my other mm-hmm. issues and compulsions and letting myself feel, I've found that so many people who have who are really sensitive, which is a positive thing, yeah. but also brings more pain because mm-hmm. you feel everything bigger. Uh, but allowing myself to feel, yeah, it sounds like such a basic thing, but it was so hard for me. It's still a practice. It is. What helped you get to that place? I mean, thankfully, you know, I, you know, going to therapy and working with my therapist and then in the program, you learn early on that, like, you got to feel things. Because even when I started serious therapy, the therapist would notice how I was so quick to, like, say something and then kind of, like, keep going and not go back there or, like, be like, oh, but it's okay. Like, it's fine. I'll get through it. It's fine. And then she'd be like, well, no. How does that actually make you feel? And, then like, it hurts so much, like, even in your chest or in your throat to have to go yeah. there. 
But once I really learned how to do that, it's like nowadays, the faster I do that, the so much easier life has right? become. It goes by much faster. You just let it go through you, like instead of just stuffing it and then, you and know. And no beating yourself up for it. No. Like, how can I feel yeah. this feeling? Yeah. Like, just feel just it. Just feel it with no judgment. I remember I had a therapist tell me once. I don't know if – do they use the term normies in sex and love addiction? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so she was using normies in a very, you know, not a sure. negative way for anyone, not right. for me or anyone else. She was just saying that because she works with a lot of people with different kinds of addiction. And when I was struggling with shaming myself for, for feelings, mm-hmm. she said there are people all over the world who something happens, they have this reaction, they let it out, and they move on with their lives. And it was like a huge aha epiphany for me. Something, again, that sounds so basic. Right. But then I thought of all these people in my life who do that. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, they really do. They just, like, freak out over it. And then there they go. <laughs> and there's no, like, big, but why and how yes. and do I have to or or trying to stuff them or yeah. diet or drink or whatever it is yeah. your vice yeah. might be. Yeah. Um, it's just such an empowering thing right. to get to that place and go, yeah. oh, I felt it. <laughs> yeah, because it's uh, first – you know, when you're starting to feel them, it feels scary to do that. It's scary. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to feel those feelings of shame or guilt or embarrassment or whatever. Like, you know, so you do everything you can to avoid them. And that's when, like, you know, the drinking, the shopping, the the sex, whatever, like, you know, everything will do to not feel the feelings. And so it's it's a big deal to feel them for the first time. It is. It really is. Could you speak to the difference between sex addiction on its own mm-hmm. versus sex and love addiction or versus yeah, yeah. love addiction? Yeah, I feel like, you know, with sex addiction, it's more about getting off and just the act of sex itself. Whereas sex and love addiction, there's that um, element of attachment involved and that need for validation. So, like, for me, I would have sex with men because I wanted them to fall in love with me or because I needed some kind of crumb from this unavailable person and they gave me attention during the sex. So as long as I got the sex, I got something. So that means I'm lovable, you know? Ah, interesting. That was really well said. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, too, that people know that people of all gender identities can have one, both, or, you know, the other. And it seems to me that there's more shame almost around either a woman being yeah. sex addicted or a man being love addicted. Right. So like that's kind of wussy or I, that's kind of slutty, which yeah. all of that is just a bunch of hoo-ha. Yeah, that's why it was so healing for me to join that 12-step program because you saw everybody experience all of it. And it really, it was good for my healing because I think for most of my life too, I had like, you know, I hated men and like men were this way and that way and whatever and I'm gonna use them for this or that but like to hear them and their stories and like they're the same stories it was mind-blowing yeah it was mind-blowing that's so it was mind-blowing that they just wanted to feel loved too (laughs) right exactly that must have been really amazing to meet other people oh yeah struggling with the same thing because for a long time you didn't even know that you were struggling specifically with that and then once you did it must have felt really isolating until yeah. you go, oh, my gosh, there's, like, this whole community of people. Yeah. I think, you know, a really big gift I got from the 12-step program is that um, – so I have a history of sex work in, during my 20s. And, I mean, I was doing it in the, the most destructive, you know, self-hating way. Um, and But then that hate for men came, like, thinking about, like, clients and customers and all that stuff. But to hear guys in the program – talk about their side of it of like going to sex workers and you know their feelings on it like mind blown Mm. wow like never again feeling that separation because it was like now looking back at everything I was like wow we were both looking for the same thing it was the exact same thing yeah yeah that is really fascinating Mm -hmm. that's really interesting so we have a question from a listener and then after We hear from Dr. Megan Fleming in New York. She's going to weigh in. I would love to talk a little bit about what healthy dating looks like. Oh, yeah. For you. Yeah. uh, Where you are now with that. But this question comes from Elle, who wrote this. My boyfriend and I have been long distance for five months and dating for a year and a half. I moved after college for work. He stayed behind to finish school. Before moving, we already struggled some sexually. He's very introverted and shy, whereas I'm always looking to try new things. 
This carried over to our sex lives. He's very vanilla compared to me. This difference often made me feel like my colorful suggestions and desires went unheard, when in reality, I know he's just too shy to act on them. This has carried over massively into our long-distance sex life, since he's not really interested in sexy talk or storytelling. When I've asked him what he'd like to do, his response is that he likes things the way they are, which involves me basically doing all of the writing and creative work. This polarity has put me in the stereotypically, quote, male role to complement his femininity. I'd much rather be submissive during sex. We've talked about open relationships, but he sees that as cheating and something only I would benefit from since he doesn't want to see other people. So I find myself messaging random men on Tinder to experience what it's like to have a man tell me what he wants to do with me and how he'd do it. I know without my boyfriend's consent that this is considered cheating, but I'm afraid if I don't at least have this, I'll have no choice but to end the relationship or physically cheat on him because my needs aren't being met. I love this guy. He's the first man I've considered living with. What can we do to make things work if I have to remain long distance for another year? And if he simply cannot understand that I have needs that aren't being met, is he really a good match for me or am I attempting to hold on to a relationship that might not have worked out anyway? P.S. I love your show and have found so much comfort and knowledge in your lessons. I've been a listener for two years and find myself coming back for more. Thank you so much, Elle, both for those kind words and for that really thoughtful question. A few thoughts occurred to me. One, it's a really tough situation, uh, so I, I want to validate your feelings. It sounds really complicated, and it's also one I think a lot of people can relate to. And second, I'm so glad you're addressing this now versus years into the relationship. Your message seemed really honest and vulnerable to me, so huge kudos for reaching out. And third, I think open relationships can be great for people who desire them and go about them well, but trying to fix a challenged relationship by opening it up, I don't think that generally works. So, you know, if you decide to keep fighting for the relationship, I personally would think working on the relationship, you know, focusing on that first and then considering whether you want to open it up might be a better choice or really thinking about do you actually want an open relationship regardless of this guy? Or are you? would you be more happy with somebody who was committed only to you and was monogamous but was maybe more assertive? Those are all just questions to think about. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Elle, thanks so much for your question. And I really feel um, the challenge and the struggle that you're facing because it is so hard, first of all, to be in a long distance relationship. Um, you've only been together about a year and a half and six months of that has been long distance. And so I can only imagine uh, even desired change like a new job is stressful. And so the impact of that alone and juggling is challenging in and of itself for any relationship. But then on top of that, there really seems to be a level, as you're describing it, of not just desire discrepancy, which is really common, um, but almost that that which turns you on um, is incompatible, that there's almost a sexual incompatibility in a sense of what gives you pleasure. Um, and that is the piece that I think really has to be looked at because we have come to realize that ultimately it is one's ability to regulate your anxiety and the willingness to tolerate discomfort for growth, right? That turns out to be more important to maintain sexual pleasure and emotional intimacy in ongoing relationships than a communication skills. So let me just sort of highlight that, you know, the growth is in the discomfort, you know, when can we lean in? Because as I like to say, our relationship, a committed relationship is the safety net to take risks, to, you know, maybe go out of our comfort zone. And I'm getting the sense that your, your boyfriend or partner isn't interested in that. And Although I hear you say on some level, maybe you're not pushing it because you're mindful of uh, the stress that he's under and the workload of school um, and everything else happening in his life. You know, I don't think you want to continue to sidestep this issue because ultimately you've already just seen yourself um, because he's not open to 
in a sense, opening up the relationship, that you are already seeking what we in Imago call an exit, right? Which is when you're trying to get your needs met outside of your relationship. And there's like what we call catastrophic exits and functional exits. Like a functional exit is, and it kind of goes back to what Esther Perel would say, you know, we can't expect our partner to meet all of our needs, right? So, you know, if you love theater or, um, you know, biking and that's something your partner isn't interested in, you know, certainly I think it does take a community. But when we're talking about our sexual um, lives and you are already aware that he considers this cheating, as you mentioned, this isn't consensual. And as hard as it is to hear, you know, one of the sexual health principles is that it's, you know, our relationships are non-exploitive. And so, without consent, you're already engaging in a behavior that feels like to, to you, it's the one need to get your relationship or your sexual needs met. And so I want you to take a step back and really ask for yourself, how then do you see the future? Um, because I think that you're already kind of crystal clear based on your own behavior that if this relationship can't grow and he isn't open to tolerating his anxiety and moving to the growth to see, you know, I often talk about this red light, yellow light, green light, right? Is he willing to try on new things, which initially, again, where you would start is the yellow light, right? It's uncomfortable, but it's not red intolerable. And can that, if you engage in the behavior, try, try on again, because anytime we try something new, we're observing ourselves and we're not as relaxed, but, you know, is he open and willing and receptive to trying on something new to see whether or not something that initially now feels vanilla or yellow, could that go green and he really feel the pleasure? Because again, for most of us, feeling our partner's desire and turn on is our biggest turn on as well. And at least for now, that doesn't seem to be an operating principle in in your relationship. And so I really want you to, even though there's never a good time, the reality is relationships are work. And I always say, you know, work isn't a dirty word anymore than sex is, right? It's the things we put effort into that we can count on. And there really just never is a good time. Um you've got the challenge of the long distance. They're going to be stressed at your work, stressed with what, you know, papers or exams in college. But I also think there's sort of no time like the present. And this really seems to me that it has to become a priority. And you both have to look at this aspect of your relationship because sexual intimacy and feeling and giving pleasure is a sort of a cornerstone to me, foundational to a healthy, satisfying relationship. And so even though that might be hard or challenging, I think it's important that you, you, you invite back this conversation, you bring it back and you really both really sit and think long and hard what's possible. What are you willing to try on? What are you willing to explore? Um, because at a minimum, you need to find something that is consensual and feels like it can meet both of your uh, sexual intimacy and pleasure needs. As always, I definitely want to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved what she shared about knowing there's not ever really a good time when there's something really difficult to talk about and really trusting your your gut too. I feel like so often we have the answers, but we're maybe a little afraid of them. And sometimes hearing other people's perspectives just helps clarify. We go, oh, this is how I feel. I'm curious, Charlene, as you've been navigating healing and relationships, relationships are challenging no matter what. Um, but because your addictions were so heavily intertwined with all of that, how do you or how did you start to approach dating in a really healthy way? How did you know you were ready for that? Yeah, so it was um, a year and a half of being sober off of all men, dating, sex, masturbation, everything. Um, and I knew I was ready because I was already telling people that I could be single forever. That's how happy I was, which was crazy because I had, you know, that was the first time I'd ever been alone. Mm. Um so I was in a really, really good place, and I knew it was time to start learning how to date healthily. So I started a, a healthy dating plan. And essentially, that's just going really slow before you have sex with someone, getting to know somebody before you have sex with them. Um, so on my plan, it was, you know, the first month you go on one day date a week, 
So that's even a big deal for me because I, I'd never even really dated since I was just having sex with him right away on some kind of drunk night. So now it's like daytime, <laughs> sober, in the light. In and, the light. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, month two, you can go on night dates, but it's there's still, you know, no sex, but you could kiss. Um, and then um, month three, you could spend the night, um, but like still no sex. Um and so it's just going really slow. So it was cool because for the first two guys that I went on dates with, I only went on two dates with each. And I knew right away that I wasn't interested in them and was able to walk away from them. Wow. And that was so empowering. Because you would have not noticed that before, would you? I mean, I would have just had sex with either of them, like, drunk at night and then thought I was in love with them and then trying to get over them for two years. Like, that's my pattern. So uh-huh. to have this moment of just walking away and being like, I don't like them. Like, that was mind-blowing to me. That's amazing. I want to go back to what you said about you were so happy being single. Yeah. Because another one of the traits is this really, you know, difficulty and fear around being alone. Right. Right? Yeah. So that must have been a really stark contrast. Such a contrast because I had my first boyfriend when I was 12, and then I never had been alone since. I jumped from boyfriend to boyfriend. Wow. And so when I was going on this dating plan, I was 31. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, so to get to that feeling of like, I could be single forever. Like I, I remember saying it out loud to someone. I'm like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> um, but yeah, but even, you know, the first um, healthy sober date that I went on, I came home and I got in the fetal position and cried to my mentors. And I was like screaming, I never want to do that again. Because like that kind of sober intimacy in the daylight, like we got coffee out in the day, like it felt physically painful because I had no experience in it. Is that common? I think so. Because it's like it's the the emotional intimacy is scary, right? Yes. Wow. Because usually, you know, love addicts have a conscious fear of abandonment and an unconscious fear of intimacy. Which is so interesting because I think when people hear love addicts, they yeah, might they think, think it's actually about yeah. intimacy, but it's the opposite. Which is why whenever I had unav- or available guys show up for me, I would push them away or I would cheat on them because I couldn't even handle it. Wow. So it was like I was There's always... There's so many layers, yeah, it seems. I was always pushing or, or, or like, you know, needy. Like it was push-pull all the time. So it would, like, just leave me with nobody in the end, you know? How important or is it important, do you think, to look at all the reasons that this unfolded for you? Like, did it feel like you needed to go back into your history and think about, like, family relationships and what you learned? Or is it more about just the now? I mean, I think a big part of my healing was definitely going into my childhood and healing those initial wounds, like the trauma. I have a lot of sexual trauma from my childhood. Um, And, you know, it's funny how trauma works because I didn't even realize I had it until my mid-20s. And even then you're just like, oh, and you're still, again, not feeling any of it, you know? Yeah. And in some ways it's it's kind of normalized the way that a lot of the other things you were saying were normalized. Right. Like, oh, just have a one-night stand. Oh, so many people go through yes. trauma. So, you know, yeah. or, or you compare trauma like, oh, this isn't oh, yeah. as bad as that other trauma. Yeah. So it doesn't count or something. Or for me, too, for a while it was just like, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm strong. I'm fine. Like, it's mm. cool. You know. Were you caretaking as well? Was there a fear of hurting other people like you don't want anyone else to have problems so you're like oh I'm fine so they won't worry about you I think I you know I just I already felt like you know there was that always that fight of not being feeling enough or then being too much so it's just like I always felt like a burden anyway Mm. so yeah yeah. I know people are listening and relating to this and my I I got chills just hearing you say that Mm -hmm. just because when you do find out that you're not alone or mm-hmm. you just hear from another perspective, I feel like that alone can be so healing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That was big for me to realize I wasn't alone. When did you decide that you wanted to create this film? Um, well, it's interesting because it kind of started, well, the way it started was in 2013, first of all. 
uh, Mark Duplass started following me on Twitter. And I just sent him a DM and I was like, oh, my God, thanks for following me. You're one of my heroes. And he was like, if you have anything that you've written that you want to show me, send it over. And I didn't have anything at the time. So oh I wasn't gosh. doing anything at the You're time. like, now I'm going to have something. A year later. <laughs> a whole year later because yeah. I had started recovery. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing that where I was, like, trying to figure out what's my purpose? What do I like to do? And then so I wrote this pilot based on my experiences. And I sent it over to him and he said, I want to meet you and I want to make a movie. And that was in 2014. Wow. And then so it's been this long process of writing so many different versions and then kickstarting it and then finally getting it done. And now it's here. That's incredible. Yeah. It's so important, too, for people to hear that it it is a journey, both recovery and also creative works, you know, mm-hmm. when you're building something, because it can often seem like an overnight success. You're like, wow, this movie just yeah. popped out of nowhere. And you're like, I've been sweating over this yeah. for years. Yeah. So, yeah, that's amazing. What do you most hope people take away from it? Well, you know, I really hope to bring an awareness to sex and love addiction um, because I want to help people feel less alone. Um, I want to help people... Um, feel connected to other people and know that, you know, I want them to feel seen. I want them to feel understood. And, you know, whether you have an addiction or not, you're going to connect to this film because we all can relate to that want of love. It's so true. And I really loved the relationship between Jim Mm -hmm. and Joy, partly because Jim seems to be more of a normie. Mm. In many ways. I mean, he has some emotional, everyone has, we all have emotional issues, right? But he would say things that I feel so many people would say not knowing better. Sure. You know, and to to hear that in a context of like, well, just get over it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that something that you heard when you started telling people? How did people respond? Uh, Absolutely. Um, You know, again, a lot of people would be like, just get get over it or like go date someone else or like. A lot of people's solution to things is just let's just go get drunk and hook up with someone, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's not going to fix my problem ultimately. Yeah, it's a deeper <laughs> thing because it's not just like you need to have an orgasm. Yeah. And even if that was the case, there's ways to do that without going out and meeting a stranger. Like there were deeper things going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So within the context of the healthy dating plan, did, were you up front with people and did you say – you know, I'm going through this. Yeah, I, I, I would, you know, both of those two guys that I did this with, they were good enough friends that I could tell them that. Um, but it was cool when I met my boyfriend, who I've now been with for two and a half years, because we realized that we both needed the same thing because he had similar issues and similar trauma. And he was also, you know, deep in therapy and kind of on this same kind of journey. And, like, we were friends first. And when we realized this and we were connecting on this deeper level, we were just like, wait, are we supposed to be dating? Because you're like, either it's really awesome or it's part of our, like, it's another vice, right? Right. Like, it's like navigating all that. Yeah, so it was cool. We did the plan, and it was fun. Because even just getting through that first month and not being able to kiss, like... All that anticipation must have been really so hot. Fun. It was <laughs> yeah. So our first kiss, like, both of us were just like, whoa. Because I, how many dates had you had before your first kiss? Four. Yeah. Four that were once a week. Like, Aww. you wait so long. And could you talk in the middle? Could you text? And Very limited, though. Yeah. Because that was an old thing for me, too, where I'd get obsessed and I'd be, like, texting all day. So I wow. had to, like, get rid of that. Could you speak to what it felt like to allow yourself to be sexual Oh, yeah. In a healthy space. Yeah. I mean, we waited three and a half months to have sex, and we were already in a committed relationship. And, you know, that was already, that brought a whole new wave of healing because what I had found from this, too, is that I had, I mean, this would be a whole other show, but I realized that I was sexually anorexic. Could you speak to what that is briefly? Because I don't think everyone knows. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's kind of the opposite of the sex addiction where now you're just like kind of repulsed and you don't want to have sex. And, you know, that's actually very common after sex addiction. You know, Patrick Carnes has a book, Sex Addiction, and his the the next book is Sexual Anorexia uh, because it usually shows up because once you're not in that, for me, sex was always a tool. So once I have the love and the intimacy already, it's just like I don't know how to have sex like this in a healthy relationship. Yeah, and what if it, like when you had before, it it didn't go well. Right. You know, it's like all those experiences where, like, maybe you didn't remember it or I know a lot of people with, 
sex addiction deal with all kinds of scary things mm-hmm. from, you know, um, they get lots of different illnesses or blackout during sex. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, having this journey with my partner, though, I had a lot of old sexual trauma come up. And that's when I really even got to even see more, again, more trauma that I hadn't felt or hadn't dealt with. And it's, you know, been this whole healing journey with therapy and all that stuff. But it's like, I'm learning how to have healthy sex, you know. Mm, Which is so beautiful. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Your family, are they aware of your advocacy? Have you spoken to them about the film? Um, Yes. I'm not very close with my family, and I think that's probably common for a lot of addicts. Um, You know, they're supportive in the ways that they can be. They haven't seen the movie. I don't know if they would be comfortable seeing the movie. I don't know if they're ready for that. My whole thing with it is just like, you know, I'm not going to force this on them if they wanted to or if they want to have a conversation about any. I am here. Yeah. But it's like I've kind of had to learn in practice of like, again, that wanting of that unavailable relationship right. for a person. It's the same exact and thing. And knowing you can get it elsewhere, you exactly. created another family. Yeah. And, and again, what Dr. Megan was saying, you can't expect one, like you can't choose a person and be like, you need to fulfill all exactly. these needs, whether it's a parent yeah. or a, yeah, and mm-hmm. you've, you've grown so much from there. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing. Were there parts of your story or the film or talking, speaking publicly that you were afraid to speak out because you were concerned about what other people might think? Absolutely. How I did mean, you deal with that? It's hard because, you know, even the little that I've done already of speaking about it or like interviews or whatever, you'll see like there'll be like a hundred great comments and then there'll be like two comments that are like, well, you're just a slut or like, you know, this isn't an addiction. Like you're, you know, you're just a whore or whatever. Like it's, it's hard to not focus on those negative things. Yeah. But I always have to try to practice remembering to focus on, on the people that do connect with it or the people I have helped, you know, like the positive Because imagine you hear from, especially from women, because, again, I don't think, I know not as many women speak out about this for Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. And one is not everybody has the agency to, Mm -hmm. not everybody safely can. And it's a scary thing for a lot of people. It's not how everyone wants to express themselves. But the fact that you are speaking about a pretty stigmatized topic as as a woman, I imagine you're hearing from a lot of women. Yes. What I love is that I am hearing from men and women. That's awesome. Which is so awesome. I love that. Um, But, yeah, because so many women relate. Yeah. So many women. I mean, we all know somebody. Yeah. Um, So, again, that feeling of not being alone has been really powerful and fulfilling. What would you say is some of your biggest advice for somebody, a loved one Mm -hmm. of someone who tells them, you know, I'm I'm dealing mm-hmm. with sex and love addiction. Um, I would make some steps to get some kind of help so that they can even start sharing about this. Because I feel like with shame, it's so contained within you. And s- such a big first step is just getting it outside of you. And so speaking that out loud to somebody. So it's already a big first step if they come to me and they share it. But, you know, starting some therapy Um, you know, if you don't have money, there's low cost therapy out there. And then, you know, there's so many support groups, 12 step groups, there's all kinds of ways to get help. And I really do believe when the student is ready, the teachers appear Mm -hmm. and you will have people show up for you. And it's like that courageous act of asking for help first, which is very scary and very vulnerable. But when you really show up for yourself and you're ready to take that first step, like miracles show up. Oh, that's really beautiful. And because of that, because it takes such courage, it's probably really important to respond to that if you hear it mm-hmm. with validation yeah. and not judgment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask questions. Don't sure. say that's not a thing yeah. or, you know, really listening with yeah. an open heart. And, and I, I always tell people when they first start their recovery or they start to look into this, to allow yourself to be a beginner. Because, you know, when we first, you know, take a salsa dancing class or something like, it's it's a mess because we're a beginner and it's going to look like that because we're a beginner. It's the same thing with recovery or self-help. It's like, it's going to look messy. It's not going to look great all the time. The practice within it is being able to love yourself and be gentle with yourself no matter what it looks like on any given day. Do you consider yourself in recovery? recovered? 
I definitely consider myself recovered, but I think that journey of like self-love is never ending. And so that self-love, that healing is always going on. So I think even being in a partnership has been very interesting because I think there's still this like fantasy idea, especially in the program of like, well, if you get in a healthy relationship, then you did it and you're done and you're fixed. And it's like, no, the healing only goes deeper because guess what? Your partner's going to trigger out so much more, and there's so much more to heal. So it's just an ongoing healing of deeper, deeper layers. Which is a wonderful thing, even though it's painful, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, I have heard also when talking to a therapist about feeling triggered about certain things, I remember hearing that healing is not about trying to make triggers go away. Yeah. It's about better dealing with them. Yes. And that was really powerful for me to hear because— I thought I had to erase triggers, mm. <laughs> and uh, it seems like that's not the case yeah. for, for health yeah, wellness. This learning how to love yourself through them. Yeah, and there's so many rewards. What would you say the biggest reward has been? Oh, my gosh, so many rewards. Being happy and at peace, being able to love myself. Honestly, the biggest one, as simple as it is, loving myself, choosing myself first, really showing up for myself. Mm. And it's, like, easy to do on those good days, but on those bad days, that's when the true test comes of, like, can I love myself even though it looks like this today? And I can now where it's not life or death. I know how to feel my feelings. I have the tools to take care of myself and get through it. And that is just amazing to me, you know, versus where I was five years ago. Yeah, it's really huge. And now you're paying it forward in such amazing ways. Congratulations again, and and share where people can find your film and learn more about you. Yeah, so Unlovable is in select theaters on November 1st, and then it's on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, Microsoft on November 2nd. Um, So if you watch it and you like it, please tell your friends. um, Hashtag Unlovable Movie on social media, and you can follow Unlovable Updates on um, Facebook, facebook.com slash unlovablemovie. And you can follow me on Twitter at Starlene. And um, we'll always be updating you on there. Awesome. Thank you so much for the work you do and for joining me today. Thank you so much. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or Spotify if you haven't. And if you enjoy it, I hope you'll consider leaving a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.